for Alan. Um, we know you can. Well, it's, uh, it's great to be back up here, being able to share the word. It's been a while, which has been weird for this last year. It's been almost a month um, since I preached, which, which hasn't happened since summer. Um, I had someone come up to me the other day and say, it's so great having Pastor Ed here and, uh, so that you don't have to preach as much and that you can uh, lead worship. And I thought, oh, that, thank you. And as I walked away from the conversation, I thought, wait a second, was that an appreciation for worship leading or, or an appreciation for not preaching so much? Anyway, you're stuck with me today. So, you know, these last few weeks uh, have, been, have been busy. There's been lots of information, uh, lots of things going on, particularly in the office. I've had some questions about transitional ministry and, and Ed, and he shared a little bit last week about, about the process, but um, it's been an exciting few weeks as we kind of align things in the office and in, in the realms of which staff is doing what and which pastor is doing what, what and information that comes out. Um, and, and I wanted just to say this morning before, before I start, I know I speak for myself and, and for Tracy, our admin assistant, that we're excited for, for this year and the things that, that are going to happen. I don't even know what those things are yet, but I'm excited for them, and it's been a privilege to, to welcome Ed into, into our church family for this season and to, and to work together um, in, in the things that, that God has for us. So it's been, it's been good and we're looking forward to the days ahead. This morning uh, we're going to spend some time in Philippians chapter 1, uh, verse 3 to 8, and I want to talk about joy and uh, particularly finding joy in Christ but also in community and what that looks like. So I would invite you to turn to that passage and as you do um, this section that we're looking at is, is a section about thanksgiving and prayer. Um, it's very common for Paul to include these in the front of his letters to the churches. Um, and for Paul, the church in Philippi, um, there, there's much that we can learn from their relationship uh, in these verses, the things that Paul thinks about them, um, the way he loves them, the partnership that they have. There's a lot that we can learn about having joy in the Savior that they uh, long to know better and to make known, but also in, in the relationship that they have formed. And so let's read this together this morning. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you, because I hold you in my heart, for you all are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Finding joy in our culture is often associated with pleasure and satisfaction. And though as Christians we aren't against those things, we simply have a greater source other than things like sex and money, power, our careers, alcohol, entertainment. What kind of things give you joy? Where do you look for joy? Where do you find joy? The quest to find joy is built on the very fabric of our North American culture, particularly the United States. When we think about that, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 
In high school, uh, me and one of my, my good friends, we were big U2 fans, and there's a song by theirs in the lyrics of, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Those seem to ring really true in, in our culture when it comes to finding joy. People are searching for a lasting joy, hoping to discover it in things that they can throw on like band-aids of, of pleasure or satisfaction. And as they find these things, they pursue things like money and power and reputation, they find that they are like Solomon, and they declare vanity. All is vanity. And this dissatisfaction isn't new to the world. According to um, the ancient historian Plutarch, Alexander the Great wept in his tent, saying, there are no more worlds to conquer. Maybe a more modern day and applicable example, I noticed there's a few notable friends of mine that skipped church today because of football. I want that on the record. Tom Brady once said after his third NFL championship, is this all there is? And if you know anything about Brady and his life, you know that the most important things in his life, things which should bring him the most joy, are all falling apart around him. So can we find joy? I think we can. St. Cyprian wrote to his friend Donatus in the third century. This is out of a book um, from Mark Christensen. It's called Heroes and Saints, More Stories of People Who Made a Difference. So this is something from the third century, a letter wrote to a, fr- wrote to a friend. This seems a cheerful world, Donatus, when I view it from this fair garden under the shadow of these vines. But if I climbed some great mountain and looked out over the wide lands, you know very well what I would see. Thieves on the high road. Pirates on the seas, in the amphitheaters, men murdered to please the applauding crowds, under all roofs, misery and selfishness. It really is a bad world, Donatus, an incredibly bad world. Yet in the midst of it, I have found a quiet and holy people. They have discovered a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of the sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. These people, Donatus, are the Christians. And I'm one of them. Paul writes this letter to the Philippian church from a prison in Rome. And he quite possibly might be the happiest man, most joyful person in all of that city at the time. Ancient Rome was a consumerist wonderland filled with games, sexual pleasures, lavish parties, substances that would allow you to escape your circumstances. Theater, the Colosseum games, And much, much more. Yet Paul had a joy a thousand times better than all of these things. Verse 4 is the first mention of joy in this letter to the Philippians. But it resounds through the entire letter. It's a central theme of the teaching. It's mentioned seven or eight different times throughout the book. Here is a man in prison whose joy is richly found in Jesus. Not in the pleasures of the world. Not what the world could do to him. And in the midst of these troubles, he has a joy that is overflowing. There's an acronym that my professor used to, to use uh, and, and talk about. We had a class, one of my very first classes in Bible college was on Paul as a person. Um, and, it, and it's kind of helpful in explaining joy. It, it's a little cheesy, but it, it gets the point across. There's Jesus, others, yourself. So if we want to experience joy, that's the order. When we read the rest of this letter, the letter of Philippians, we see that Paul is all about Jesus and his life-changing gospel. 
And his mind is filled with concern for others. In this context, it's the Philippian believers, but if you read his other letters, you see that Paul isn't, isn't so concerned about things that are going on around. He's concerned about people, the concerns that are happening in the church, the conflicts in the church, the theology of the church, different aspects of what are going on. Paul doesn't pretend that he doesn't have any real needs either. But the glory of Jesus and the concern of others occupy his heart and mind. In Philippians 2.3, he encourages this further. Consider others more important than yourselves. Since this was Paul's mindset, he was truly happy. Filled with joy, even while in prison. Here's the reality. No Jesus, no lasting joy. A lack of relationship with gospel partners, you'll lack joy. Always focus on your stuff, yourself, your problems, your schedule, you'll lack joy. Even Jesus' followers often misplace their cause for joy. If you look in Luke chapter 10, when Jesus sent out the 70, they came back with joy saying, even the demons submit to us in your name. And what does Jesus do? He rebukes them. He says, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. We have to remember that our joy isn't derived from our performance or our popularity or our gifting or the things that we can accomplish. Our joy is found in the fact that we have a relationship with God through Christ. One we have done nothing to deserve. It is simply a gift through what Jesus has done. So how can we experience continual joy as disciples of Christ? I'm going to talk about four different ways to know joy out of these verses. The first is prayer. Knowing the joy of prayer. Verse 3 to 4 says, I thank my God in all of my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. As Paul prays for the church in Philippi, he is full of thanksgiving, which leads him to joyful intercession. In prayer, we can speak to God at any time and any place. We can pray for our friends and our family members. But in prayer, we also gain a fresh perspective of what's going on. I don't know if you've experienced that. When, when something's just going on in life and we, we quiet ourselves and bring ourselves to the feet of Jesus and we pray about it, it brings this different perspective. It removes the perspective from us where it's all about us and what we can accomplish and do and puts the perspective back on what the one who can actually do something about it can do. Prayer gives us strength to live faithfully for God as well. So Paul begins his prayer by saying, I thank God for all of you and all of my remembrance of you. Even though the, the church in, in Philippi isn't perfect, Paul is still grateful for them. All of them. Every one of them. Don't miss that. He uses the phrase, you all, in verses 4, 7, and 8. Yet in chapter 4 of this letter, there are some individuals in the church in need of pastoral rebuke. Yet Paul is grateful. Conflict didn't crush his gratitude. I think there's a deep lesson for us in that. So often our joy is completely obliterated by any form of conflict. Can we find gratitude in people? Even if maybe there's a disagreement? I think there's a lesson there. Do you give thanks to God in prayer for people? One commentator notes that Paul rarely gives thanks to God for things. Paul thanked God for people. 
who despite whatever trouble they may have been to him, and let's be honest, there was a lot of people that Paul ministered who are trouble to him. I can't even imagine at times what it would have been like to be him. He probably just wanted to bang his head against the, the prison bars sometimes. Who despite whatever trouble they may have been to him, remained a source of joy and thanksgiving. Paul even gives a note of thanksgiving to the crazy Corinthians. That church was a mess. And I think that there's instruction for you and I in that type of gratitude for us. Because the world's not going to teach us that kind of gratitude. If we are super critical people, always focusing on what's wrong, we won't be grateful people. It's important for us to remember that sanctification is a slow process. Often in the church, we forget that and we think that it's going to happen overnight. Like, oh, that person knows Jesus, therefore, why aren't you perfect? You know? Why isn't my, why isn't my spouse perfect? Why do my kids act this way? Like, they've been baptized? What's wrong with them? Why does that person in the church act this way? Sanctification is a slow process. We shouldn't look for perfection before we show gratitude. And in the church, we often make that a caveat. I'll show you gratitude. I'll, I'll, I'll be grateful for you if you can measure up to my bar. Instead, we should look for evidence of grace in people's lives. And be quick to thank God for the fruit and virtues in other believers' lives. This is what Paul does. Maybe you allow conflict to, to crush your joy. Don't miss this. In Paul's gratitude, he doesn't overlook the conflict going on. He addresses it. But he is simply able to rejoice in all that the Lord is doing despite the conflict. This also gives us another example that joy, when we, when we think about joy, it has to come from a different place than what the world can offer. There has to be this deep well of joy. Because if we're simply only going to be joyful based on our circumstances or what going, what's going on around us, we're not going to truly experience it. There needs to be this depth of joy in our lives that can only come through the gospel. So, have gratitude for other believers. Thank God for them. Ask God to be work in them. One commentator notes that many problems in the church would disappear if we genuinely prayed for one another. Many problems in the church would disappear if we genuinely prayed for one another. It's also clear in these verses that Paul also has great memories of his time with the Philippians, based on the phrase, in all of my remembrance, as he remembers his times. Not all of Paul's memories in Philippi were great. I mean, he was thrown in prison there, too. People were angry with him. You can read that story in Acts 16 if you'd like. But yet in that journey, God moved powerfully. People came to believe in Jesus regardless of the hardship that was happening. Miracles were done. Yet Paul was thankful in the midst of the difficult circumstance. And his memories were fond of his time in Philippi and the people of Philippi. We must remember no matter what we face as believers, Jesus has already taken care of our greatest problem when he went to the cross for us. And we have touched on it, but this is the perspective of Paul as he's in prison. How does he have joy for others? Because he has fully embraced all of what Jesus has done for him and all of who Jesus is. He recognizes that his greatest need has been accomplished on Jesus on the cross. 
that doesn't mean that, that there is difficulty in life. It doesn't mean that it won't impact us or that we won't grieve when things are hard. It simply serves as a reminder that we still have joy and can have joy in pain and hardships of life. I'll be honest, I, I hadn't really experienced that time of joy and suffering together in, in the same uh, at the same time until a few years ago. Um, as many of you know, my wife and I have been on, on a fertility journey. We haven't been able to have kids. Um, Heather, has, Heather has one sister. Her name is Beth. She's awesome. Her husband's awesome. His name's Ben. Um, they were down for, I don't even remember if it was Thanksgiving or summer. Anyway, we're, we're having supper one night. And it's well known in our family that, that we, we weren't able to have kids. Ben and Beth are probably our closest friends and have walked with us in that. And uh, all of a sudden, kind of just before dessert, Beth goes, yeah, we're, we're pregnant. And uh, all of us around the table didn't say anything because none of us knew if Beth and Heather had talked. And it was really awkward for everybody. And we kind of just sat there and we're like, oh, well, good. Um, and... It was hard for Beth and Ben to tell us. It was hard for us to receive. It was hard for Heather's parents to know, how do we navigate this? And I remember leaving that night and being like, this is, this is not right. And spending some time in the next day thinking about it and praying about it and then talking to, to our family that we can find joy in this circumstance and we can still grieve in this. And the reality is, is that this is how we have to walk out this situation. That we can completely have joy in in the birth of this child and yet grieve in the midst of what is lost over here. And I think at times we think one can take place and the other can't and we have to switch them out, but the reality is is that they both can exist in the same place. It's interesting, when Ruth was born, her middle name is Joy. And she is probably one of the greatest sources of joy in, in our family. You can have joy in the midst of sorrow and grief. We know and serve a big God, and he is able. So no joy in prayer. Through our gratitude for other believers, which points us back to our Savior, and the joy that we have in him because of all that he has done, and is at work doing in our brothers and sisters. There is joy in praying for each other because we're praying for the very reality of what Jesus has done in the lives of other people and is going to continue to do. There can be joy in that. Our source of joy always comes from Jesus, but that reminder of that joy can come in the joy that we have for other people. Pray for them. I was scrolling through Instagram uh, a couple days ago, and, and there was this um, photo, and it was one of my former youth being commissioned at the church that he just got hired at. And I thought, wow, what a joyful thing. And I just spent a couple, just a couple minutes just praying for my friend Alex as he was getting commissioned. And there is joy in the partnership, knowing that he is walking out in what he is doing and what God is calling him to do. We can find joy as we pray, not only to Christ about the things going on in our lives, but for other people and rejoicing in what's going on in their lives. The second thing is to know the joy of partnership. Verse 5 says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. One of Paul's reasons for joy is the great gospel partnership that he shared with this church. And it was unique compared to the other churches that he ministered to. What does gospel partnership mean? As we consider the word partnership, and that word for that is koinonia in Greek, 
which is often translated as fellowship. So it regards kind of a, a variety of relationships in, in the New Testament involving mutual interests and sharing. One commentator notes that marriage and family relationships, friendships, business partnerships, and common ownership of property were some of the examples of that word koinonia. D.A. Carson states that in the first century, if Harry and John bought a boat to start a fishing business, they entered into a fellowship together. I think that's way cooler than entering into a business together, entering into a fellowship together. I'm also a big Lord of the Rings fan, so maybe that's why. But the heart of true fellowship is self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. So to relate this all back to the Philippian church, it is based entirely off of gospel-centered friendships as well as a shared mission of the gospel being preached. So more accurately, this partnership between Paul and the Philippians refers to their friendship and their being on mission together. Paul's friendship with the Philippians is established in Christ and bound together in the Spirit. They recognize this early on, that they are brothers and sisters in Christ, that it's the Spirit that has united them and brings them common ground. Though Paul is Jewish, Jewish and many in Philippi were from Greece or Asia, they were brothers and sisters in Christ because of the spiritual reality. Unbelievers have friends. And this is part of what we would call God's common grace to humanity. That good things happen and still exist and can be attained, and God grants those things. One of those good things is friendships. And as believers, we should have friends with with non-believers just as Jesus did. But spiritual friendships, gospel partnerships are different. C.S. Lewis once said, friendships are discovered when you say, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. They are based on commonality. But gospel friendships are much deeper because there is a you too that is actually so much deeper and more profound. We have a common savior We are united by the same spirit and are sealed for the same inheritance. It's just different. It's deeper. Gospel partnerships are also deeper because not only do they have a deeper common ground, they have a means which to deal with conflict that the world doesn't. The gospel. When a bunch of sinners come together and form a church, though redeemed, there will be trouble. Look at this church in Philippi. Look at many of the churches that... Paul ministered to. We've experienced trouble here. It's not uncommon. The gospel teaches us about sin, repentance, reconciliation, forgiveness, and service. And these are necessary to maintain gospel relationships. You and I are made for relationships. Unfortunately, often our relationships with believers can look no different than our relationships with everyone else. And that's not how it's supposed to be. Sometimes in the church, we we just reject gospel partnership and and friendships of faith. Tony Merida, a, a pastor, points out four obstacles that will keep you from having gospel friendships. And they are sensationalism, mysticism, idealism, and individualism. Sensationalists, as he says, don't find Christian community scintillizing enough to participate in it. However, the Christian life isn't about shock and awe but lowly acts of service and love, which are extraordinarily significant. Mystics make the Christian life into a series of quiet times 
They desire to live a me and Jesus kind of Christianity without the church. But our faith is to be we and Jesus, not just me and Jesus. Idealists struggle in Christian community because they have, in the words of Bonhoeffer, a wish dream of what the church ought to be, and it never lives up to their expectations. They're not able to have gratitude in the midst of other things. Individualists fall prey to culture that only enjoys community online, failing to grasp the depth of deep relationships. These don't have to be our reality, but sometimes it takes having a new vision for us to wake up and see, "Mm, I'm a little like that sometimes. Friends, you need gospel friendships. You need friends who are united in Christ, friends who love and live on the gospel, friends that will fail and fall, but who need the same mercy and grace of Jesus that you need. You need that. If your desire is to honor Jesus and grow in maturity, it is essential. This is only one side of this partnership that Paul speaks about. So you need friendships, but you also need co-workers on mission with you. You need to have people that you can connect deeply and be united in the gospel with, but there's also people that you need to be able to do this life with, honor the Lord, share the gospel with. The Philippian church is a great example of co-workers. Paul calls them to suffer for the gospel, which is something they are willing clearly to do. They have been partners with Paul from the beginning of his ministry, not just in the support they send him financially, but for his practical needs as well. But they are also people who are preaching the gospel in Philippi, both when Paul was present, but also part. When you co-labor with somebody, you become close. A simple illustration of this is when I used to work at McDonald's in high school. I had a very different relationship with my co-workers than I did with the customers. It's different when you're in the so-called trenches of a task. There's a bond that is formed. I've also experienced this in other teams that I've worked with over the years as well. Particularly when I think about the mission trips that we used to do. I've led uh, many mission trips to Mexico with, with a team of people. And I've probably brought myself as, as a pastor hundreds of people to Mexico and been parts of maybe up to a thousand different people coming through this church to Mexico. I'm not sure I can remember some of the names that have come. But I know the names of those leaders that I've served with. I know their spouses, their families, their strengths, weaknesses, what makes them tick, how to motivate and encourage them. And each one of them has my deep respect and appreciation for the sacrifice that they made in those times. There's something different when we do it together, when we work together in something, when we have a deep partnership in the gospel, a deep partnership in mission. And I would say that those have uniquely built some of my best relationships and friendships over the years. Unfortunately, my earlier analogy of a restaurant is a better analogy for the church often. The church is often a group of customers gathered as an audience more than it is a group of co-workers on mission. It's good to have gospel friends. It's essential, but we also need to work together for the gospel to do life together, to know each other well enough to speak into each other's lives. 
to be able to hear each other when others speak into our lives, to build those relationships so that that can be present. Each one of us shares in the common mission of making disciples. That means that the gospel must be known in us, seen in us, and spoken through us. This is a tall task. It can be intimidating, hard, thankless, and can lead to persecution. That's why we need co-workers, people on mission with us, gospel friends. We're not meant to do it all alone. The co-working relationship with Paul and the Philippians was manifested in three practical ways. There was financial aid and personal care. The church cared for Paul in a way in, in this way on his mission. It seems that they were most likely chief among all of the churches in his financial support. But I wouldn't get caught up just on the financial aid because they provided a personal care to him that was very significant as well. Second, their partnership involved suffering alongside one another and encouraging one another. Third, their partnership involved praying for one another. And these are good tests of gospel partnerships. Generosity, suffering alongside and encouragement, and prayer for one another. So what brings Paul joy? People. His friends, his co-laborers in the mission part His co-laborers bring joy because of the people that they are in his life. The joy comes because they are God's people. If you struggle with joy, you may not have cultivated such relationships or maybe participated in the mission the way that you should. Have joy in God's people and all that we can be for each other as we pursue the things of Jesus. Third, we, we know the joy, we know joy through anticipation. Verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. One of the reasons for Paul's joy is his confidence in God's nature and purpose. He is sure that God will continue and complete what he has started in the Philippian believers. This, of course, is based on his own personal knowledge and experience of God. God has taken Paul on a journey from the road to Damascus to a prison in Rome and eventually to martyrdom. He has seen the faithfulness of God firsthand in his life, but also in the lives of people in the churches he has planted. And he is sure by this overwhelming evidence of God's goodness and grace that he can trust God to continue and complete his work in the lives of the Philippians. That's for us too. We need to trust that God, who began a good work in your life and in Tabory Free, will complete it. Will continue it and complete it. Be confident of that. Paul tells the Thessalonians that Jesus is coming to be glorified by his saints and to be admired by all those who have believed. 2 Thessalonians 1.10 That day is coming and that day the return of Christ should give us joy this day. So we see two forms of anticipation at work in Paul's teaching. The first is that God is always at work now, and he continues to work and will complete his work in you and I and in all of creation. We can have joy in that, that God is at work. He's at work in you. He's at work in the church. He's at work in creation all around us. It may not happen in our timeline, Things that we look for or we desire might not happen when you want it to happen, but he has been faithful. We can trust in that faithfulness because of the word, because of his promises, because of the things that he has done and has been proven true. 
And though it might not happen in our time, we can trust that it will be good and it will be in his time, which is the right time. The second part of anticipation is the coming of the Lord. We don't know the day, but what an incredible joy that will be when Jesus returns to bring back all that is his. This is not our home. This life, even with all of its beauty and precious moments, isn't all that there is. Because in the midst of this preciousness and the beauty is brokenness, pain, decay, and wickedness. Praise God that his son will return. And we have great joy in this return. When you think of of that return, there's anticipation of longing that, that he will come back. Paul is a great example of living in this anticipation, something we can model after. He writes in verse 21 of this chapter, to live is Christ, to die is gain. To be with Christ is gain, but to live is to live with the joy of Christ, knowing that he is at work until the joyful day of his return. That is the purpose of us on earth. To live is to live with joy The joy of Christ, knowing he is at work until the joyful day of his return. Our perspectives in this anticipation is to long for things to be made right by Jesus. For his return to come. But in the meantime, we live faithfully and joyfully knowing he is at work in us. And through us for his purposes. So we can have joy as we anticipate all that he will do in and through us as we seek him together. Fourth, We can know the joy of affection. Paul says in verse 7 to 8, It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. I love these verses because they demonstrate Paul's heart. Paul wasn't an isolated apostle writing letters from some room or, or some, uh, some house that he lived in with no connection or just an intellect that shared knowledge of his theology. Paul loved people deeply, passionately. These were his friends. He would have gladly given his life for them. Paul writes, for God is my witness. He is serious about how he feels. He feels deep emotional connection to these people. It's not just about theology and discipline, which which are important, but this teaching is about this deep affection for God. And because of that affection for God, affection for others as well. Paul says, I hold you in my heart. There's a clear heart and love relationship that Paul has with these believers. What this means is that Paul delights in this friendship, a friendship centered on the gospel that is willing to sacrifice for each each other. And Paul also says he's right to feel this way, for you are partakers with me in grace. It was right for Paul to feel this way about the Philippians because of their partnership with him in grace, both in his imprisonment and in the defense and establishment of the gospel. Being a partner in this grace doesn't mean Saving grace, it means partners in sharing in the struggle of making the gospel known. The Philippians were not ashamed of the gospel, nor were they ashamed of their friend Paul's imprisonment. They supported him, cared for him in every way that they could. And this made this relationship between them and Paul deep and rich. Paul ends with a statement, I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. 
Paul reminds them of Christ's affection and how God is at work in him to love them in the way he yearns to love them like Christ. His desire is to love them the way that Christ loves them. The Greek word for affection refers to an inward part of the body or emotions of love and deep compassion. Paul is united in Christ and he shares Christ's love for the church. This love and affection for the church brings him joy. This love for the church goes beyond sentiment. It's founded in a deep love of Jesus and the gospel partnerships that he has. And because of that, the deep love that he has for others. Do you realize the affection, the love that Christ has for you and the church? Do you have that same love and affection for gospel partners, for your church? We can cultivate that. That affection leads to joy. And often in the church, we can be kind of cold and sort of, hey, how's it going? We don't really get to know anybody. But these deep relationships move to this place of affection, this joy that comes out of love. We can have affection in seeing people do good things for the Lord or serve the Lord well and say, wow, that's really great to see. That brings me joy, seeing them live out the gospel. But when we have relationships that are founded in Christ's love with each other, there's an affection of joy that comes with that. Joy isn't simply just something that we feel once in a while. There is a well source of joy that comes in knowing Jesus. But much of our joy that we find in Christ is manifested in our own living out the gospel with others. Paul is probably the greatest teacher about joy ever. And yet most of the time when he speaks of joy and rejoices about joy, it has to do with the way that Christ is working in other people. It's centered around the person of Jesus, but it is found in the people of Jesus. So how can we experience continual joy as disciples of Christ? We experience continual joy by having authentic gospel friendships that are on mission together. The source of these relationships is founded on the joy that we have in all that Jesus has done and all that we anticipate he will accomplish. Friends, if, if we want to grow in joy, one of the best ways to do that is to be in the lives of other people. And I don't mean just simply find a friend for a hobby. I mean friends that you can talk about deep spiritual things with. People who can speak into your life and that you can speak into their lives. There can be challenge and love and support and encouragement and that these things are evident in those relationships. I have these, I have these youth guys. Most of them aren't youth anymore. They're becoming adults. Uh, we get together about once, once a quarter and they come to my house. We have a sleepover, hang out. There's one of them there. His name's Carter and we're having a conversation and um, we're very close. We've been very close for lots of years and we're talking about some things going on in his, his own life and I look at him and I go, you are inherently selfish. And he just looks at me and his eyes are like this big. And, and, uh, and we have this conversation around his, his selfishness and he doesn't, he's not offended. He was a little bit surprised by it, but he's not offended. And I just spoke into him. I said, this is the reality of you've lived your life. You haven't had to sacrifice before in your life. You're you're only 20, you've never really had to sacrifice anything. And so now when it comes to your relationships, having to sacrifice, it's very difficult 
for you. And he worked out this conversation. But I could have that conversation with him because of our deep friendship. Do you have friends like that? I had a friend correct me at something at last weekend at, a, at our men's retreat. It's not always fun, but I love that man. Do you have people who can speak into your life that way? Because here's the thing, none of you have arrived. I haven't arrived. Pastor Ed hasn't arrived. We need people. None of us are perfect. Not only do we need to keep our eyes focused on Jesus, but we need these friendships, these co-workers, so that we can experience joy in what Christ is doing all around us. We can experience continual joy by having authentic gospel friendships that are on mission together. And that source of these relationships is founded on the joy that we have in all that Jesus has done and all that we anticipate he will accomplish. Let's pray together.